Testament scripture reading this morning is Isaiah 50, verses 9 to 10. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And the New Testament reading is 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 17. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Pam. Well, we continue our sermon series in 1 Peter, and Peter is now concluding his section on submission to authorities by clearly stating his reasoning for why the church, uh, and in particular those marginalized in a Greco-Roman society, uh, the, the most, uh, slaves and wives, uh, must endure the circumstances that they have faced. And so with this, uh, verses 8 to 17 begins a concluding thought, and we will see ourselves seeing Peter reiterate and hammer home his point uh, for those believers. Christians will face persecution, and they need to ready themselves to do so. Christians will face slander, reviling, questioning, and in doing so, they, like us, need to ask ourselves, how do we frame all of what is happening right now? in a way that honors Christ? How do we make sense of what is occurring? As Jason alluded to in the intercessory prayer, um, I was involved in a car accident on Tuesday, um, and on Wednesday we received some news that um, our baby needs to be born a little bit early, and there's, there's a lot of questions and concerns and anxieties that come along with that. And um, I was thinking to myself, as I was even preparing the sermon this week, maybe I should have chosen a sermon series on joy or rejoicing or some other sort of measure. Um, but the reality of suffering is for all of us. My father-in-law reminded me this week, um, he said, you know, uh, John, there's, uh, there's sufferings that you'll face that will feel like a drop in the bucket for those who are truly suffering around the world. And he wasn't trying to marginalize my pain or anything like that, but he was just trying to give perspective. Uh, that our sufferings in light of, if we look at the ultimate example, the suffering of Christ, gives us a perspective that helps us to endure this world that we're living in now. So 
uh, we go to our text today, but before we do that, can we, can we pray? Father, help us to see through your word today, Jesus Christ. Help us to see ourselves in light of our uh, sufferings, in light of the persecution that we might face. And we as church can face Christ's trials because we know that he has gone before us to see them. Lord, we find ourselves blessed because of what Christ endured. And so may you call us to do the same. Lord, as the body of Christ, to love those within and outside the church with the love of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So, um, what would it take for you, just that opening question here to start off, to run 26.2 miles? What would that take? This is the standard mileage for a marathon. Uh, and currently in the United States, believe it or not, there are 127 yearly marathons that are held for people to willingly sign up, pay hundreds of dollars for travel, for food, clothes, shoes, and such, and then spend an entire day, five to six hours, to run, walk or jog, 26.2 miles. Some do it for glory, some do it for fun, but all of them know and understand one thing. They are up for a time of intense suffering. Now, my reason for entering into the one and only marathon I ever ran was uh, both, some could argue, selfish and some could argue selfless. Uh, my dad's church, you see, was building a new building off of uh, Coca-Cola Drive and Route 100, and the gym that they were building needed money for a basketball hoop. Now, uh, in my early 20s, I loved basketball, and so I was like, I want a basketball net in the gym of the church. So I raised money to run the Baltimore Marathon to commit myself to this kind of suffering, you know, and I reasoned to myself, this is for the church. This is a great way of getting in shape. I can pick up a nice hobby. Who knows? You know, so forth. Um, but then the race started, and 10 miles into this race, I realized that I wasn't just signing up myself up for suffering. I was signing myself up for intense persecution from this course. Every step, every mile began to feel like even more pain, and this course was taunting me, destroying me with every hill and marker that seemed further and further away. Um, as most marathoners know, if you ever ran a marathon, you actually stop sweating after a certain point because your body can't produce it anymore, so you just start excreting uh, salt from your pores as they break down, as, as it comes off, your, uh, during, off you during the race. And so suddenly, this persecution gets you questioning everything. Why did I decide to do this? I don't love basketball this much, right? I definitely don't need to get in shape like this, right? Uh, what was I thinking? Why did I do this? But what kept me going uh, through this race was the only wise thing that I, I did was sign up for something what's called a pace group. Uh, these are people who are committed to running a certain time to finish the race together. So I joined the four-hour and 30-minute pace group to try and finish under five hours, which was my goal. And for every mile, this group came together. They celebrated each mile. They encouraged each other to be wise about when to eat and when to drink and, and to keep accountable for each mile of the race, knowing that the suffering that we signed up for held something greater at the finish line. You see, Peter is addressing the church in the midst of a marathon of change, transition, and incoming persecution. 
And this section of text here today, Peter is wrapping up his discussion to the church about submission to authorities, to those who, who might persecute them, and tell them, you need to be a pace group, a church united and moving in the right direction, despite all that is surrounding them and all that they may be doubting about why they decided to be a part of this thing called the church. Because persecution is coming. The church might be inclined to see their persecution as I did on that marathon day. Why, why did I sign up for this? Why am I running this race? How do I endure? And so Peter gives them a way to see their persecution, and we'll take a look at a couple of, of ways to see them today. Three things. Uh, one, uh, persecution drives us to a grace-filled community. Uh, two, persecution drives us to good works. And three, persecution drives us to gospel witness. So a grace-filled community, good works, and a gospel witness. So let's begin by looking at how persecution drives us to a grace-filled community. Peter begins verse 8 with, if you look at it at first glance, seems like a random list of attributes that the church should display. Uh, They seem kind of arbitrary, but we have to remember the flow of thought that Peter has been driving again and again as we've been studying this book together. That the church was to respond living as exiles, as strangers, and those who will be rejected by outside communities. Uh, that to consider what it means to be united to Christ and his body, and that their hope is not of this world, and therefore their response is not like anything that the world would be able to understand. So these five characteristics here in verse 8 is sort of an anti-response of those facing persecution uh, would be expected to display. He's saying there are those who are persecuted and suffering. They're going to respond in a certain way, and I want you to respond in these five ways that are completely counter to those who are suffering persecution. People who are persecuted without gospel hope don't stay united. Rather, they're looking for someone to blame. Uh, They don't respond with sympathy. They only look to their own needs. They don't consider themselves as a family. They, they think of themselves as alone. They see themselves without compassion for others. How can I be compassionate when I'm just trying to save my own skin? And humility, humility is the last thing that anyone should desire. They simply want to get back to that higher status where they don't have to face these struggles anymore. And yet Peter is giving these five traits of how the church will look very different to the challenges of rejection and upcoming suffering. You see, they're forming a pace group of people united to the body of Christ. Um, their former professor, uh, Edmund Clowney, calls these the five fingers of Christ's church. So if you look at your hand and your fingers, you'll notice that they're all around the center of the hand, right? And the center of the hand is Christ, and these five fingers are the extension of what Christ does for us. So in other words, the key to understanding these five traits is really understanding the Christ who displayed it for us. So let's start with unity of mind, this first trait. It's clear that Peter is calling them to see that they need to be unified in what they think and believe about Jesus Christ. Uh, United in doctrine, united in thought, united in vision, in the same direction. And think of the importance about believing the same things about the gospel together. Uh, This is why churches need to state what they believe, what they confess to the world around them. Um, Christianity is more than just 10 points on a website, but it's actually detailed descriptions of what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about world and culture around us. In our tradition, we call this uh, being a confessional church. 
Uh, if you look at our confessional documents, the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's shorter and larger catechisms. We spell out everything. Right? Our statements are clearly worded for the world to see. And it's important for us as Christians to remain united on these issues for the sake of moving together in this pace group that we're in. Now, uh, the objection, of course, to the idea that we you know, don't need creeds, we don't need confessions, we just have the Bible. Uh, but notice the irony of that particular statement. Um, if you say, well, I don't need anything but the Bible, no creed but the Bible, uh, that is actually a creedal statement. Um, and one that actually, by the way, cannot be proven by the Bible. Confessions and creeds help us ground the church to a unity of mind within the body on the first tier issues of faith. Now, we acknowledge that there are second and third tier issues that do not strike at the heart of Christianity, and we can work in unity towards those things, but this unity of mind needs to be uh, consistent for us to move together as a body of Christ. That unity of mind takes sympathy to understand. The second trait. Whereas the impulse is to become less sympathetic to those whom we serve when we are persecuted, the unity of mind leads us to consider our brothers and sisters, to, to look at the plight that they face, to ask ourselves the question of whether or not we care for the trials that they are facing. Um, I've shared this before, but I'll share it again. Uh, the main reason why so many persecuted churches around the world feel discouraged and leave the faith is not because of the outside persecution that they face. Rather, it's those within the church that have stopped showing sympathy for them, that maybe organizations that have promised their support but back out, maybe those who have felt abandoned by them and left them. So, in other words, it's, it's sympathy within the church that causes these persecuted churches to fold. You see, sympathy causes to us to feel for others in ways that we may not understand completely what they're going through, but it causes in our like-mindedness, in our unity of mind, to reach out to them with understanding. This is why, by the way, we must not forget those brothers and sisters around the world that are still laboring in difficult circumstances for the sake of the gospel. Those who are suffering in North Korea, in China, in Ukraine, in other parts of the world, in Nigeria. The central way sympathy can truly authentically be expressed is this third characteristic trait. It's the center of this five-fold exhortation. Uh, scholars believe that by uh, Peter making this the third trait in the middle, it becomes the most important, and that's this word brotherly love. In the Greek, to all my Eagles fans here in the room, we know this Greek word as Philadelphia. This word expressing a familiar love for one another within the family of God. In other words, we are not just a bunch of strangers coming together for a really nice worship service. We exhibit the qualities and nature of a family. And each of you carry the value of this family of God here. We are less complete without you here. We are less vibrant. We are less whole without you here in this room. Uh, so, and for those of us who may not have um, a, 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 a natural family to belong to, we have a spiritual family filled with spiritual fathers and brothers and mothers and sisters, aunts, cousins, uncles, a spiritual family here in this room. And so when we see this display of familial love, we will begin to see this word for tenderheartedness come out, this fourth character trait. Uh, th that word can also be translated as compassion. So if sympathy is defined as caring for one's afflictions, compassion is the movement that takes action. 
Compassion, in other words, is more than just feeling for one's sorrows. It's taking the realization to act upon it in ways that are tangible and felt. Compassion has legs. It moves. Now, Peter saves this final exhortation, this fifth one, for last. And up to this point, these first four values, all of these values expressed here would have been seen valuable in the cultural context that he was writing to. Right? The secular world would have looked at those four and been like, yeah, those are, those are nice qualities. However, his last quality, which is why he saves it for last, this exhortation would have been extremely countercultural to persecution. And that's this final quality of the church. It's humility. It's humbleness. You see, humility back then was seen as a weakness, the characteristic of a losing people. It was a term designated to those with a lower social status. It was seen as a shameful term to give to someone, someone who could not defend themselves in their own honor. It was like calling someone a deplorable, essentially. For Peter to express humbleness as a quality that should mark the Christian church is astounding. It's the challenge of people who are facing intense persecution, intense suffering, and say uh, this, this term, which is almost seen as a dehumanizing term in the secular culture, I'm going to flip this for you, and I want you to embrace this term as something that you should hold on to. You have to remember why Peter would be asking for this. Peter is basing all these exhortations not upon the standards of the world, not for approval from the world in this, but rather to the persecuted church to endure like Christ endured. Christ exhibits all five of these qualities in perfection. It is Christ who brings us to like-mindedness because he is one with the Father and the Spirit. The character of God is built upon this trinity, this three-in-one, and so too must the people of God be united. Sympathy is not based upon a mere secular human pity, but rather Christ expressing his solidarity with those who are hurting, those whom no one would want to sympathize with in their worst of states, the leper, the sick, the poor. Familial love is from the Jesus who calls us his brothers and his sisters, that we are adopted into his family and that he is preparing a home for us. Compassion lies in the Christ who looked on the crowds with compassion and he was moved to feed the thousands. His love for those who even wanted to take advantage of him to continue to feed them. And then the most culturally unbelievable act of his day. Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, though being persecuted by his enemies, didn't use the moment to strut his authority or impose his terrifying power and might. Instead, he humbled himself to death. Even death on a cross. The second Adam redeeming us by humiliating himself. In subverting all of our expectations, this humiliation of Christ leads to our and his exaltation. This humble Christ calls for the church to exhibit this same feature of humility, yes, even while experiencing some of the worst suffering that humans can endure. Peter's call for the grace-filled community for the body of Christ is to realize their call to community, in other words, is not just a platitude of adjectives, It's a calling to imitate their Savior. When he was reviled, in verse 9, he did not revile back. And instead, bless the world through his death and resurrection for us, so too the church is called to live out the blessing as Christ's hands and feet. Bless, Peter commands us here. And that's what leads us to our second point, that persecution 
not only calls us to a graceful community within, but it calls us to good works from without. Peter, in the end of verse 9, gives an odd phrase that might seem difficult for us here to interpret. He said, bless that you might obtain a blessing. That word for bless is related to the idea of invoking God's favor on your enemies. That actually what the church is called to do in response to persecution, in response to slandering, in response to reviling, is to bless their enemies. Can you imagine this? You see, we want a Jesus that says to us, you know, to those who are persecuting you, we want a Jesus who says to us, you know, church, you have my permission to smack them down. You can demean them. You can talk nastily about them to harm them, ruin their lives and their reputations. We want Jesus to say those things for us. Why? Because we want instant vindication. We want instant revenge. We want a Jesus who seems in his might and his power to destroy all of our opponents in the midst of the suffering as it is happening. And what is Peter saying to the contrary? What are we supposed to be doing to bless our enemies? That the persecuted church is called to good works to them. What are the reasons for Peter doing this? Why is he commanding this? There are many that people conjecture, uh, given what the church was going through in this region of the world, which is basically modern-day Turkey. Uh, these exiled Christian Gentiles are facing all kinds of challenges of being misunderstood. So. Uh, the early church, after all, was seen as a threat to the Roman Empire. Uh, they were mislabeled cannibals because they performed something called the Lord's Supper and ate the body and blood of Christ. So Peter's commands here to bless their enemies could have been easily seen as a PR campaign to improve the image of Christianity to a watching world. But notice that Peter doesn't frame that this way. Peter says, bless that you may obtain a blessing. In other words, he's not suggesting that this life we receive from Christ, uh, this blessing of eternal life, is somehow based on good works towards our enemies. Rather, he's saying that the marker of those that who are saved, the ones who continue to pursue blessing others in the face of real trial and real difficulty, they will one day receive the future inheritance that Christ is keeping for them. In other words, uh, it's not saying that to bless our enemies is a condition of our salvation. Rather, he's saying that those who bless will one day receive the blessing because of who they already are in Jesus Christ. You bless your enemies, those who persecute you, because you have already gained so much in Christ, you bless them. That distinction between I bless because I'm going to get something out of it versus I bless because I'm already in Christ and he has prepared it for me, is a difference that makes all the difference. If you are blessing someone merely because you long to receive something good out of it or to change your situation, then everything that Peter is calling for the church to do is debunked because ultimately it's not about living as we are in Christ, it's living selfishly. It's running the marathon for the wrong reasons. It's running the marathon so you can get what you want. But if you call to bless because you know that you already have a greater inheritance that nothing can take away from you, you bless. See, and now you can demonstrate all these five characteristics, these qualities, because you already have the greatest gift that you could possibly have in this life. Everything that you do, in other words, flows out from the goodness of the grace that you receive. You see, it's only then our works can be called good because they are rooted in the goodness of Christ 
rather than the motivations of receiving some kind of earthly or heavenly credit. This is how Christians live in grace and prevent themselves from being selfishly motivated. Peter roots this in Scripture himself, itself by once again reminding them of Psalm 34, which is uh, verses 10 through 12. This is uh, Peter's favorite song in this epistle. This is the second time he's referred to it. So first he reminded, as you remember, that he said, taste and see that the Lord is good in Psalm 34. But now he's reminding them of the motivation for the persecuted church to do good works, to love life and see good days. Good days referring to the heavenly kingdom of God. He's not saying that if you do good works, you will never see a bad day ever in your life. No, he's talking about the heavenly reality of what it means that we will live in the good days of the Lord all the days of eternity. To run away from evil and pursue peace with others. We are to know that God is there watching them, watching us, hearing them, listening to them. And the pursuit of the holiness that God is calling them to, to be holy as he is holy. And when we do so, what does it say here in these verses? God is looking upon them with favor. What about those who persecute Christians, who walk in evil? What are those who continue to pursue the things that are against the heart of God? In verse 12, we see that, uh, we talked a little bit about this last week when we talked about men who abuse their power and position against women. But here the exhortation extends to all those who persecute and go against God's evil. The face of the Lord is against them. You have to realize something here. Not just for the unbeliever, not just for those who persecute, but for us as well. Uh, God's justice will not be mocked. There is nothing we do in this life that we sort of just get away with. And that includes the systems of this world. That includes uh, politics which pursues evil ends. That includes despondent rulers who think that they are in control. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Their day of judgment is coming. Now this might seem like a harsh thing that Peter is reinforcing, but you have to realize that this resolves so much of the anxiety and outrage we feel in the world today as those who are undergoing great suffering. Uh, what is it that you hear over and over again in our, in our cultural day today? The system is broken. Why are these injustices allowed to continue? When will we see relief? How can these powerful people get away with it? And when we ask those questions, what is it that we're really asking for? We're asking for God's justice. We're asking for justice to finally rule over the situation. We're asking for those who committed acts of horror and violence to receive their just due. And guess what? Christianity says God will do something about it. In the situations with, with well, if you don't believe in a God, no such justice would have ever seemed to occur. Think about the great evils of history. Nazi Germany, Pol Pot's Cambodia, the Rwandan genocide. All these things, the people who were involved hardly received exactly what was due to them. But God's warnings are starkly clear. There is a greater judgment waiting them. And we shudder to think about what would happen to them. So this gives perspective for the persecuted church, that ultimately there can be nothing that harms them in the end. This is uh, verse 13. They might receive, as Peter did, persecution and suffering, but ultimately, who is there to harm us if the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous? This echo 
of Isaiah 59 in our Old Testament reader that Peter is drawing from. What other way could we view then what we're facing and the suffering that we're facing as anything but a blessing? A blessing. Every iteration of the church that was under this intense scrutiny, it was their love and compassion towards others in the midst of fiery trials. It was these acts of good works. You think about the early church in Acts 2, sharing and donating to all those who had a need. The early martyred Christians in Rome, giving housing to those who had property taken away and who were beaten and flogged. Those during the Reformation, showing compassion and care to those suffering under the Black Plague amidst persecution from the secular government and the state-sponsored medieval Catholic Church. The modern-day house church movement in China, caring for those suffering under prison and exile for simply bearing the name of Christ. You see, the quality of a church in the midst of persecution is the fruit of good works towards each other and towards the world that hates them. So consider how the church walks like Jesus in this manner. Think about Jesus. How did he respond in good works amidst his persecution, his suffering? Though Jesus was reviled, his zealousness of good works led to a peace that showed no fear of man. Though he suffered greatly for, uh, for what he endured, Jesus never gave up doing the right thing in the right moment for what? The sake of the righteousness of God. This is instructive for us in our conversations in our dialogue for those who hate Christians, for those who rail against us in person or online, for when we see unjust laws that are being passed, for those who slander us with uncharitable remarks, we don't turn towards evil in those moments. Instead, let it drive us to imitate our Savior, to do good, though, to, do good to those who hate us and be a blessing to those who hate us even more. As the scriptures say, for one could die for a righteous man, but surely for an unrighteous person no one would care to die except Jesus Christ. So how does that call us to live? In other words, a Christian isn't called to isolationism or retreat in persecution, but leans in towards the offender to love them with grace and mercy. And through this we now see why the persecuted church is called to good works because we are, our last point here today, giving a gospel witness of Christ himself. The end of verse 14 all the way to verse 17 gives this picture of what it means to truly defend yourself against persecution. It's not embracing ourselves with fear for the person in front of us, nor being troubled in how they see you. Rather, it's about whatever circumstances honoring Christ for those who challenge us in the faith. Peter, Peter anticipates, in other words, that when we begin acting out in good works in our faith, that people will begin to ask of us exactly why we live the way that we do, why we hope the way that we do. You see, in other words, our ethical lives radiate a curiosity about our faith that is more than just what, beyond what others might simply see as just a good deed. It's about living in such a way that causes others to question, why would you live this way? What is the foundation of this? Asking you for the reason of why you believe what you believe. Uh, a local businessman and consultant in Annapolis, um, you might have heard of him. His name is Mike Metzger. He is the founder of the Clapham Group. 
Um, and his, his idea was starting a consulting firm to assist businesses to become better businesses uh, by providing seminars and consultations based upon gospel principles. You see, he wanted to see creation, fall, redemption, new creation lived out in companies. And so he framed them for the business world as this phrase that many of you might have heard of is, ought, is, can, will. Right? It's a framework that he used to try to, to imitate this gospel narrative. The Clapham Group was successful in bringing many companies to a better place of understanding and health within their organizations. And as these methods became more successful in the world, uh, the hiring firm that hired, one of the hiring firms that hired Mike for one of these uh, sessions got annoyed with him. And he said, Mike, where did you get these business principles from? Mike simply smiled at him and said, you're not going to like where I tell you where I got these from. And the man kept on pressing him. He's like, no, I need to know. I need to know where, where this is coming from. And finally, Mike broke out in a smile and said, you know, all these principles uh, that you're thinking of, that you think are so groundbreaking and changing uh, the culture of your company, uh, these all came from the Bible. These all came from Christianity and the hope of the gospel. And the other man, as Mike tells the story, just fell in dismay. And he said, you mean to tell me that all these things are in Scripture? And Mike just smiled at him. And shared with him more about how all of that, what he was talking about, the foundation of his very company, was actually really all about Jesus. You see, there is a way, when you live out the hope that you have, that we respond in such a manner that gives those, even if they hate us and can't accept Christianity, even as they deny Jesus with their lips, they can't help but see the beauty of Christ in our response to them. To give a reason for the hope that we have. How does this happen? Peter qualifies to give a defense and give a reason for the hope that they have. See, Peter knows when he uses the word defense, which is apologia, right, our, our, where we get the word apologetics or defense of the faith. He knows that the church would think of that term, apologia, as a legal term, as we somehow making a courtroom case, as we want to, to sort of steamroll our appointments. And so he qualifies this defense of the faith with these words, yet do it with what? Gentleness and respect. In other words, the way that we defend Christianity is not simply with clever arguments and logical breakdowns. We defend Christianity winsomely, trying to win the person to Jesus with our gentleness, with our respect for them as an image bearer of God, not just an opponent to defeat, with a good conscience. So notice, Peter does not say here, defend the faith, the hope that you have, with a derogatory meme, the rolling of your eyes, a statistical chart showing the goodness of Christianity throughout history, done with the arrogant voice of a thousand shock jock podcasters. In all my years of ministry and life, I can't think of anyone who has been humiliated into the faith mocked into the faith, derided and jeered into the faith, talked down to, seemed intellectually inferior, and goes, you know, that Jesus sounds really great. Really, I'd like to get to know him more. This is not, as some have coined it, gospel boldness or courage or whatever labels that we use to try to define it. It's actually running contrary to the very calling that we've been given. The calling is to suffer for doing good rather than doing evil, even if we think that that is for a good cause. In other words, Peter never believes that, and I've said this before, Christian outcomes are not justified if we don't have Christian ethics. Christian outcomes 
can never be justified without Christian ethics. And neither we should defend the faith as though our outrage is justified against a hostile world. What is the Christian called to do instead? To die. To follow the pathway of our Savior. How do we know this? You know, Jesus never played the game of the Pharisees or the Sadducees who wanted to trap him with their words. What does he do? He instead finds a different way with compassion, with responses filled with wisdom towards the sick and afflicted that Pharisees saw as object lessons. Jesus sees the humanity of the person and heals them. Towards the disciples whom the Pharisees wanted to persecute for breaking the Sabbath, Jesus instead calls them to remind them of the disciples' hunger and sees the Scripture's teaching on them. Towards those who reviled Jesus and mocked him on the cross, what does Jesus do? Does he revile back? Does he mock them back? No, he looks to the heavens and asks for their forgiveness to the Father. Jesus serves through his death and resurrection the ultimate paradigm of what it means to live the persecuted life, to be a gospel witness, and to respond to those who would want to challenge us. Friends, when we consider Christians all across the globe, we will realize how much we are blessed to live here in in, in a place where we can practice our faith without fear of the kind of intense persecution that awaits so many of, of our brothers and sisters in the world today. But with that liberty we have, my, my great worry as a pastor, if I'm, I'm going to be frank here, is that we who live here will feel as though we are entitled to live a very comfortable Christianity that will never ask us to live out these principles in these nine verses. That when persecution comes, we'll just jettison community and look for something less demanding. That when persecution comes, we stop pursuing good works, but rather isolate ourselves to our echo chambers. When we persecution comes, we no longer try to win the person, but instead we try to win the argument. Instead of embracing suffering and seeing our inheritance that Christ has won for us, we run away and say, you know, Jesus would never call me to something this difficult and challenging. Consider our missionary friends in the world today, serving in dangerous contexts. Think through their lives. Consider your pace group in the universal church of Christ. Consider the race that we're all running together. We run the marathon that we've been given. We set the pathway of how to respond to persecution before us. We the church, like the church that Peter is writing to, like the church of every generation, will face sufferings of many kinds. But we respond not with the weapons of this world, but with compassion, gentleness, sympathy, like-mindedness, the love, the familial love of Christ, the grace of Jesus, who calls us to good works and calls us to be a witness, to bless because we have received a blessing. Let's pray together.